Well, we come now to our sermon scripture reading today in Nehemiah chapter 9. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. I'll be reading the whole chapter. It's a long chapter here. Uh, as you're able, will you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Nehemiah chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua and Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Shenanai, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Benai, Hashbaneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers." And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you 
and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan, You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into your hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as you would, as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled, and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back, and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard them from heaven, and many times delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously, and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which, if a person does them, shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and a stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day 
in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is God's word. Amen. Well done for staying standing through the whole reading. And just to encourage you, it says here that uh, they read from the book of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. So I guess we're just getting going, right? Uh, The story of the book of Nehemiah is a story about how to rebuild, and we've been looking at that together. Now we come to a pivotal moment in the story. For rebuilding is not simply a matter of rebuilding physically, rebuilding externally. It's a matter of rebuilding our lives personally, spiritually. internally and as we saw last week they began that great task of revival by returning to the Bible but now this week they confess and what they confess is the truth about themselves the truth about God and therefore they make a renewed commitment or covenant Now, when you and I think about revival, we don't tend to think about it in these terms. We tend to think about revival as a kind of shot in the arm. It's a bit like if your iPhone is going flat and you plug it back in. Revival is a bit like recharging your batteries. But revival is when the truth becomes real. And at this moment, the truth of God that they confess and the story they tell, and we'll just pick out the main themes of the story this morning, the story they tell becomes real to them. And how I long and pray that God by his spirit will become real to you right as I'm speaking. And Mahatma Gandhi, one of the great Uh, heroes of of the world, one of the great um, liberation heroes, uh, wrote his autobiography. Uh, It's a very long, rambling book. I've read it cover to cover. And the the subtitle of Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography is My Experiments with the Truth. But he never, though he came close to becoming a Christian, He never actually did. He had experimenting with the truth, but it never became real. And I'm praying it would for you this morning. So the truth about ourselves, who we are, the truth about God, who he is, and therefore a real commitment. So first of all, the truth about ourselves. And uh, what they pray is they confess that they're uh, sinners. Uh, They say, verse 2, they confess their sins. And what do they mean by that? I mean, the word sin is 
such, seems such an old-fashioned word to us. What does it mean? Well, uh, they uh, begin by saying that uh, God made them, verse 6, so they are a created people. He made them. And then they say, verse 7, that God called them. He chose Abraham, their forefather. So they are not only a created people, they're a called people. What is more, they say that uh, God rescued them. They were in Egypt, in slavery. And uh, verse 9, God heard their cry, and they tell the story of how God rescued them. So they're a created people, a called people, a rescued people. But, verse 16, uh, they uh, acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks. Wonderful image, isn't it? It's like, I'm not going to go where you want me to go. I'm refusing. Stiffen your neck. And didn't obey their commandments. So they're a rebellious people. This is what they mean by sin. They rebelled. And uh, they, they tell the story of how they made the golden calf, which is an idol. And they're basically saying, this is the one who rescued us rather than God. Uh, verse 18, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. So they've become idolatrous. They're worshipping a false god. They're rebels against the true God. But nonetheless, God brought them into the promised land. And but still, verse 26, again, they're disobedient and rebelled. So what they mean by sin is they're rebels against a good God. Uh, that's verse 26. And then they tell the story that you can read about in the book of Judges, where over and over again they rebel and God rescues them. And then they rebel and God rescues them. And their conclusion of who God, uh, uh, therefore, is that, uh, verse 36, we now, because they've been sent into exile and now they come back to Israel, but they're still under the Persian rule. Verse 36, we, behold, look, we are slaves this day. So what they're saying is that they are rebels against a good God. What they're saying is they are a bit like teenage children of good and loving parents who have rebelled against their parents to such an extent that they kick their parents out of the house in the winter, take all their money and their possessions, until finally exasperated the parents call the police on the children. And now they're in jail. As slaves. That, they're saying, is their identity. That is who they are. How different this story from the story that we tell ourselves today. The story we tell ourselves today about who we are is that we are the very unlikely accidents of um, the primordial chemical soup and the unusual liaison between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens that has led to an extraordinary genetic machine. Basically, in that story, we have no parents. It's our house, and we can do whatever we like as long as what we like doesn't hurt 
another, another genetic machine. Two very different stories, which is true. I've been watching uh, the Crown series on Netflix, and there's a moment in that Crown series when Princess Margaret, one of her, I suppose we could say, lovers, becomes a Christian. And the relationship, he, he breaks off the relationship. And there's a moment when he's explaining to her what has happened to him. He says, do you remember how we used to talk about the darkness and the despair and the disappointment that we felt? Since he says, I have submitted, what an old-fashioned word, submitted. Since I have submitted to God, all that darkness and despair, all that has gone. Like you, can, you can tell yourself whatever story you like, but there is a truth. And it's often revealed by that darkness and that despair versus the, well, what Augustine said. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Is your heart restless? What story are you telling about who you are? Is it this story? Have you found rest in God? So that's who they are. But then who is this God? Well, they, they, say, they describe that too. Verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. So there is only one true God, they're saying. And this is the God who called them, who rescued them, um, who led them uh, through the wilderness, who brought them into the promised land. He's a rescuing, promise-keeping, loving God. And they summarize it in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Why? He who keeps covenant and steadfast love that is they're saying who God is in other words God they're saying is like an extraordinarily powerful father who will move heaven and earth to rescue their lost child Is that the story you tell about God? In church circles, there are all sorts of different stories that people tell themselves about God. One common story, it's a little old-fashioned now, but you may have come across it, is that God is more like a very strict headmaster who has certain, frankly, sometimes random rules that you must keep or else. You can watch this movie, but not that movie. You can wear these clothes, but not that clothes, those clothes. Uh, then there's the view of God as a sort of sugar daddy. He would, he would just let you do whatever you like. But here God is said to be great and mighty and awesome. Awesome. 
We have these different stories about God in our minds. It's so important we feed our minds on the truth about God. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, spiritual nature like bodily nature, like our physical nature, spiritual nature like bodily nature will be served. Deny it food and it will gobble up poison. What story are you telling about who God is? Is he, is he an extraordinarily powerful father who will move heaven and earth to rescue his child? All these different... I, I, I first realized this when I was a missionary in, in another country. Obviously, I grew up in England, as a, in the Church of England, and in Anglican churches, there are often stained glass windows, and those stained glass windows often have pictures of Jesus in them. And so that image of who Jesus is is very much in my mind because I grew up with that. And I remember going to another country, into another church from another tradition in this, in, on the mission field, walking into that church and noticing the stained glass windows and the pictures of Jesus. And suddenly those pictures of Jesus in that other country no longer looked like an Englishman. What image do you have of God? Is he a great and awesome God who will move heaven and earth to rescue his child? But there is a problem. And the problem is is woven throughout this story in this chapter and frankly throughout the story of the whole Bible, um, especially throughout the story of the Old Testament. And that problem is around this covenant. Is the covenant that God has made with us, remember I defined covenant as covenant is God's commitment to us. It's a committed relationship. Is God's covenant conditional on our obedience or is it unconditional? And as you read this story, you hear, you hear both. On the one hand, he rescues them, whatever they do. But on the other hand, they're now slaves because they have disobeyed. They're under his judgment because they disobeyed. So which, which is it? Conditional or unconditional? And the answer to that is hinted at in their real commitment that was only fulfilled in the New Testament. So verse 38, so we had who God is, who who we are, who God is, and now this real commitment on the basis of these truths about God and themselves. Verse 38, because of all this, because of the story, the truth about who God is, the truth about who we are, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. And then chapter 10 talks about all the people who signed the covenant. But, but literally, when it says because of all this we make a firm covenant, literally it is, we cut. When you make a covenant in the Bible, you always cut a covenant. We cut a faithful pledge. 
And the reason why you always cut a covenant goes back to the story of what a covenant is. You need to have that clear in your thinking. So in Genesis chapter 15, when God makes his covenant with Abraham that they hear talk about earlier in their story, Abraham is told to cut, to kill animals and separate them into two pieces. And when that covenant is made, a smoking pot and a flaming torch move down the middle of those cut pieces. And what that is saying is, and Jeremiah makes this explicit when he refers back to this covenant, what that is saying is that the covenant that is made between God and his people, if that covenant is broken, then what happened to those animals will happen to us. The covenant is cut. But by God miraculously making that smoking pot and that flaming torch somehow move down the middle of those two separated animals, what God is saying, is I will keep that covenant even if it costs me my life. And one day it did. And the covenant was cut. A new covenant in his blood poured out for us he was cut that you might not be he was broken that you might become whole by his wounds we are healed that's how you cut a covenant A new commitment to God, as I'm praying that you would make this morning, will not last if you just treat it like a, I'm going to go to the gym more often, I'm going to get up earlier, I'm going to work harder, I'm going to be more disciplined. All that does is it creates somewhat frozen uh, personalities because you know you can't do it and so you have to fake it. But as the Apostle Paul says, if you cut a covenant in view of his mercies, in view of what he did on the cross, that he was cut, that you might not be, by his wounds you are healed. In view of his mercies, we then offer up our bodies, our whole lives, As a sacrifice. We too. Cut a covenant. Who could not. When you realize what Jesus has done for you. How could your heart be hard. How could your 
neck be stiff. Such love. In view of these mercies. As, as uh, John Murray, the Scottish theologian, put it, this is a whole-souled, a whole-souled self-commitment to Christ and away from sin and its consequences. The truth becomes real. I remember when I was uh, an undergraduate student at Cambridge, listening to the great John Stott preach. He would come down sometimes and preach to the students. And I remember him preaching in John Stott's style of, of preaching. Um, when you're a preacher, you listen to hundreds of sermons by all sorts of different people. So I have in my mind, I can, I can hear his voice, the way he tended to preach, and his style and his intonation. And John Stott had a particular way of preaching, which was... Um, uh, by no means stiff or uh, boring, I mean, electric sometimes, but precise, let us say. And as he was preaching that one time, there was a moment when he came off his notes and he sort of looked out at us undergraduates and he said, you know, if I had my life again, I'd give it all for Christ. This seemed particularly impressive to me as an 18-year-old because he seemed unlikely and remarkably old by then. If I had my life again, I'd live it all for Christ. And then he paused. If I had a thousand lives, I would live them all for Christ. How about you? Oh, Lord God, we pray that in view of your sovereign mercies, we would live our lives for Christ. We pray, Lord, that the truth of who we are and the truth of who you are will be made real by your spirit this morning as we worship you. Lord, remove from our hearts and minds idols, other ways of thinking and feeling about you and ourselves and replace them with the truth made real by your spirit through your word. And so, Lord, may we this morning cut a covenant, a commitment to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.